those of us who feel that the last 40 years were the wrong thing for America are so driven to do the right thing and not to do the right thing in like really broad ethical strokes, but to get everything right. A list of things where we say the right words, we talk about them in the right places, we speak at the right times, we don't speak at the wrong times. Think that that drive to do the right thing is keeping us a little bit frozen around mask wearing and social behavior. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we are talking about vaccines and masks. I'm James Carville, and we promise those things are related. You just got to stick with us. But first, if you like what we do here at Pantsuit Politics and want to support us, one of the easiest ways to do that is by sharing the show with your friends and family. And whether that's on social media or the next time you're chatting together, feel free to, like, take their phone and show them how to do it. I have done that several times. Personal endorsements are really the best way to bring in new listeners to our community and to podcasts generally. So still lots of Americans out there not listening to podcasts. What is wrong with y'all? So we need y'all to go out there and convert, convert people to listening to podcasts because they're a blessing. And our show is made better when you do that. For example, being able to put together vaccines and masks and James Carville is a direct right. result of the wonderful conversations that we have in this community. Mm-hmm. So, Sarah, you posted a couple of articles as homework on our Patreon page and on our Instagram feed. And maybe we should start by just a brief overview of what those two articles were about. Well, let's start with the first one, which is called The Liberals Who Can't Quit Lockdown by Emma Green. It was on The Atlantic posted on Patreon. I posted on Instagram. I posted on my personal Facebook page. And it sparked quite the reaction. Here's the excerpt that spoke to me. It says, those who are vaccinated on the left seem to think overcaution now is the way to go, which is making people on the right question the effectiveness of the vaccine, Gandhi told me. And Gandhi is an epidemiologist quoted in the article. Public figures and policymakers who try to dictate others' behavior without any scientific justification for doing so erode trust in public health and make people less willing to take useful precautions. The marginal gains of staying shut down might not justify the potential backlash. Now, before we end in this conversation, I want everybody to take a deep breath with me. This is a loaded topic. Obviously, I've been a Democrat from the age of 18. I love liberals. I love progressives. I count myself among them. But we do not have a monopoly on being right or righteous. And I am worried that a lot of times in these conversations, especially if there is even a tiny piece of the conversation that touches on the Trump administration, which, of course, any COVID conversation does, it becomes, well, we're not them, so we're right all the time. We said this in our book. We said this all the time. Neither side has a monopoly on being right all the time. And we can also be wrong without being bad. And that's the thing I really want to emphasize. I am not mad at anybody. I do not think anybody out there who is choosing to be overly cautious is a bad person or a bad citizen. I am in no way, shape, or form going to confront them on the street ever. No, never. I'm not angry at them. 
What I am looking for is a little bit of self-awareness and a cultural, societal, inter-party even, conversation where we can learn about what has happened to us over the past several months in order to grow and do better in the future. That's my pitch. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I think that's a good opening. I feel a little bit awkward because I don't care so much about being a good liberal. I'm just I'm new to the party and am in the party because I care about continuing to have a functioning democracy within the context of a republic. And I think that that has really been threatened over the past four years. I do care a lot about being sensitive to other people. And I think that that gets perceived about me as sort of a wokeness or a radical leftist kind of thing. My language would be I just care about other people's varying experiences. And so one thing I want to acknowledge out of the gate in this discussion is that it is a blessing 
to be in the United States where we can have arguments over what appropriate mm-hmm. post-vaccination behavior looks like, the entirety of the rest of the world does not have the good fortune of more supply than demand on vaccines mm-hmm. when India is suffering in such a devastating way right now. And so there's a there's a roughness to this debate from the beginning that is wrapped mm-hmm. up in the United States was really effective at producing and distributing vaccines and didn't share them from the get-go with the rest of the world. And that has created insular conditions, which is like the whole story of the United States right now, right? We have all of these things going for us, which insulates us enough to tear each other apart over what Mm -hmm. we do in the confines of our spaces. So that's important to me to recognize. And I think as I consider what the goals have been of our public health guidelines from the beginning of the pandemic, it helps me to track what was the most pressing concern at each point and what's the most pressing concern now. And so the sort of lockdown behavior, even when some of us in retrospect will criticize aspects of it, which I think is a fair and important exercise, I was all on board with that lockdown behavior in the beginning Because we didn't know what we were dealing with and what we Mm -hmm. knew was really scary and really threatening to our ability to be able to get our arms around it. And so that, to me, requires something different than where we are over a year out, where we really do understand both what we're dealing with and what our capabilities are. Because I think now our most pressing concern is how to get the most people vaccinated. Well, it feels like the conversation shifted to me. And that's what I'm trying to bring some awareness around because it went from we don't understand the risk to we must continue to do this until the risk is eliminated. And I am just trying to say that I don't think that's the right direction to go into. I'm not mad at anybody. Right. I just want to keep emphasizing this. Like if you feel traumatized and if you feel look, you know, We were all traumatized. Every single person, I don't care if you were a hedge fund billionaire escaping to the Hamptons with a support staff, every single American at one point thought, oh, my God, what if I die from this? And that is traumatic. And some people had much more intense experiences from that. Some people are not with us today because of COVID. Like, and I'm not trying to downplay that. That is traumatic. That is stressful. I was reading a piece in Scientific America that my friend Dylan sent me about cave syndrome, and they described it as post-COVID stress, like a PTSD. And I think that is a reality. I just think it becomes this is the way to be because of science and because of the risk when what you're really talking about is the absence of risk is the goal, which I don't think can ever be the goal, as opposed to this is the reality. This is where a lot of people are. How do we care for each other as we're dealing with this instead of just putting it all on the individual to handle that anxiety by continuing to lock down? Like it's it's I'm not again, I'm not mad. I'm like worried. I'm worried. I want to see people in a place where the society and the leadership leadership is what I'm really talking about here. Like and you've gotten really good at articulating that and like teaching me to say like, We're not talking about the reactions from the public. We're talking about where we need leadership on this. And I think we need leadership to say, yes, there's real anxiety. 
But you don't need to accommodate that anxiety and try to use science to justify it because science cannot help you get to risk elimination. That risk elimination is not a reality, even with herd immunity. So which now they're saying is probably not realistic. So let's talk about how we can assess risk, how we can really depend on the science instead of politicizing it, because both sides in this debate have politicized science, period. Both sides have rejected science that they didn't feel like met their goals. And if you cannot see that about your own side, we need to have a conversation. And I don't want in any point of this conversation to minimize the risks that still exist for Mm -hmm. certain populations in our country. You know, I understand that parents are having a really hard time trying to figure out what it means that adults are vaccinated and kids aren't. I understand that there are families with especially vulnerable kids Mm -hmm. who would say, yeah, I'm trying to get the risk to zero because as a parent with a kid who I don't know what would happen, a zero risk is really the only thing I can live with. I totally understand that. So, again, I think you're right, Sarah, to just point out that I'm really thinking through what is the example for sort of averages here? Not what do individuals choose when individual decision-making is really fraught. But it's really tough because the whole pandemic has demanded of us a collective mindset. I thought the Washington Post put it really well by saying we are at an inflection point where so many people have been vaccinated and our public health systems are able to deal mostly with what's happening in terms of infection rates, that this shift is more individual than societal, that you are doing more of an individual risk calculus. And I can respect all manner of individual risk calculations. I really can. I do want to make sure that the collective task, which to me, again, the most important collective priority right now is encouraging people to get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that there is enough of an example out there about how liberating it is to to have the vaccine that people are encouraged Mm -hmm. to do it. And I worry a little bit that, again, on a broad societal level, you do what you need to do in your house. But on a broad societal level, I worry that we aren't showing people that, like, I do trust the science. I do trust the vaccine. And I feel real confident that whether I'm at a baseball game or in Target, I'm protected. Yep. Yep. Because it's so hard because even as we move to individualized, I'm going to start using the term harm reduction because I think that's really what we should focus on. Because, again, risk elimination, even with COVID, even with our kids, there's no zero risk for our children ever, period. They live in the world. So that's that's just something like I try to remind myself all the time for my own (laughs) mental health. I think as we move to that individualized harm reduction, there is a cost to saying, like, you do you. We do that a lot in American life. And I think what's frustrating for me is the same people who I feel like are saying, you do you, are the same people saying, like, but I'm doing it for all of you. Well, if we're if we're really about, if this is really about I'm trying to be aware of that I could still spread it, even though it's a minuscule risk— because I'm so concerned with being a good citizen. Listen, we talk about citizenship all the time on the show. It is of a top priority to me. 
Like, that's a very limited view of the impact of your decision. That's what's worrying me is I think there are bigger costs in in the same way that I think that blue states, progressive communities were wrong. I'm going to say this as clearly as I can, not because I am mad at anybody who chose this, not because I can't see how we got there. But now on the other side, we can do some Monday morning quarterbacking and see that there the risk for shutting down school exceeded the risk of spread or infection from COVID with our kids. And I think the longer we deny that, the worse it is. We need to own where we politicized the science. And we decided that the science told us one thing, but it agreed with Donald Trump, and that wasn't good enough for us. And I saw this in conversation and conversation and conversation. And that's hard. And again, I'm not like, you're bad. All is lost. But I just think we need to be clear-eyed about that. The science has told us something very, very clearly, not there's no risk because they cannot assure that ever, but that the risk of reopening school was low and the cost of keeping it closed has been enormous, enormous to teenagers' mental health, to women's economic participation, all of that. And I just... If we're framing our individual decisions out of this civic participation, and I'm really worried about my fellow citizens, then I think that's wonderful. But we need to be honest that the impact on our fellow citizens is broader than sometimes we want to acknowledge. I think that's right. I also think that, and here's the connection to me to the James Carville piece, which if you, let me set that up in case you haven't read it. James Carville spoke to Vox about what he views as a risk for the Democratic Party. And he said it very plainly in James Carville fashion, which is always, I think, fun to hear and, and read, even if you don't agree. And if you're a youngin', which we have some, James Carville was a very famous Clinton campaign consultant. Now, I guess he wasn't really a consultant when Clinton ran for president the first time. He was just a plain old campaign worker. He's married to a famous Republican, Mary Matlin. Now now a libertarian. Now a libertarian. Marius. And now he's sort of a, a famous Democratic talking head. And he is colorful. OK, he has a, a strong Southern he's accent. From Louisiana. Yeah. He's very uh-huh, plain uh-huh. spoken. And so he said to Vox that everybody in the Democratic Party knows that wokeness is a problem. And he was really clear that he's talking about wokeness basically driven by white college educated people who want to be in front of everything and want to be right about everything. And he and he referred to this now. Don't get mad. He referred to this as kind of everybody acting like we're, we're constantly in the faculty lounge. And some professors got mad about that. Now, if you're a college professor, I don't want you to feel disparaged. I think it was a somewhat useful metaphor to be able to say, we are discussing issues through the most pure academic framework and then expecting the general population to adopt that jargon. He said, Republicans are a party of slogans and Democrats are a party of jargon, and it's a problem. And to me, the connection between this conversation about vaccines and mask wearing and what James Carville had to say, much of which I do agree with, is that we are driven to do the right thing. I think Mm -hmm. those of us who feel that the last four years 
were the wrong thing for America. Yep. And I firmly put myself in that category. Those of us who feel that the last 40 years were the wrong thing for America are so driven to do the right thing and not to do the right thing in like really broad ethical strokes, but to get everything right. A list of things where we say the right words, we talk about them in the right places, we speak at the right times, we don't speak at the wrong times. And and I think that that drive to do the right thing is keeping us a little bit frozen around mask wearing and social behavior. And it again shows how insular, white, college-educated, upper-middle-class to upper-class people are from others' experiences. Because when you're having a discussion about being overly cautious as a sense of civic duty, I do think it diminishes the experience of people who never had the benefit of staying home, who Mm -hmm. delivered our mail, who went to Amazon plants and got those packages out the door that we needed to keep living our lives as comfortably as we can. And many of us lived quite comfortably during the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people. I think that we, we show how insular our definition of being a good citizen is. When we decide that we have to stay in March of 2020 behaviors, despite the fact that any adult who wants the vaccine now can have it. And here is what else I hear a lot, especially from people who felt abandoned by their state government, like a lot of people who felt like their you know, governors were just leaving them to fend for themselves. They say a lot of like, well, I don't trust my fellow citizens. I trust the science, but I don't trust my fellow citizens, which I hear that. And also, if the science is saying it doesn't matter how bad your fellow citizens are, the vaccine protects you, then that that's important to remember. But I feel like what happens there, that the desire to be right is defined and the, the defensiveness, if I was doing it for the right reasons and you are criticizing my behavior comes from my motive was pure and the motive is only defined in opposition to the other side. My motive is always pure because I'm not a Republican. My motive is always pure and how dare you attack my decision making because I'm not Trump and I disagree with Trump and that means that I care and I'm right and I'm following the right rules. And I see and I think that's a little bit of what James Carville is getting at too, right? That Because there's a paternalism there. I trust the science. I'm doing the right thing because you suck and you won't. And like people feel that. People feel that. And some of the like the vaccine hesitancy we're going to have to overcome, which is the bigger societal impact I am worried about. I am both worried about the impact of that attitude, not just because I think it is harmful to other people, but also because I think it is harmful to people who do feel traumatized, who did have just horrendous calculations to make based on disability or immunocompromised family members. Like, again, like, I think this is hard on everybody. And that is why I am concerned. And I think James Carville is <laughs> in that his about his end goal is to win is concerned about everybody. Like, it's not just I feel good popping off about wokeness. It's that I care about the things woke people care about. And I want to achieve those things, which means we have to win the election. I was my version of hot, you know, I run I run kind of cold, as we say often here. I was my version of hot for a good three, four days about Marco Rubio dunking on Coca-Cola 
and other companies in Georgia for taking a stand about Georgia's voting law when they weren't taking an equally fervent stand about the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in China. I was really hot about that. I care very much about what's happening in Xinjiang. And also, that is not my standard. My standard is not, well, if you have to speak out about this happening across the world, and if you don't, you can't criticize what's going on in your own community. That's bananas. Mm -hmm. That's bananas. And I bring that up as an example because I think there is a version of being a liberal Democrat that goes like, it's not worth criticizing anything within this party because the other party yep. is so bad. And I don't I don't want any part of that. I think that's bananas. Yep. And I'm not even really criticizing a lot here. I share your concerns, Sarah. I'm just caring. I swear to God, I'm just caring for this party I love so much. I share your concern that we are using language that continues to fuel a divided America. I share your concern that we are in a place where the Democratic Party tends to send a message that unless you are really present with suffering constantly and in every space, you're not doing your work. And so around COVID, to me, that looks like Unless you are really present with how many people have died, which I don't think our psychology is wired for. I don't think that our brains can handle half a million people having died largely unnecessarily from this crisis. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is a big lift. And I don't think it's my work to do to try to, to feel that all day, every day. I can care about it tremendously. I do. Listen, there were 10 solid days when I thought my mother was going to die and I could not do a thing about it, not even sit at her side in the hospital. And that is something that I will carry for the rest of my life and that affects me in different ways all the time and always will. I am not asking anyone to move on or to mm -hmm. buckle up, or anything like that. I am just saying, I also need to be able to continue to live my life in a joyful way that helps me connect with other human beings. And right now, I have questions about whether, for example, and you know, my husband and I talked about this when he was on the podcast, and people did not like it. But I will say it again. I have questions about whether it makes any sense at all for the two of us fully vaccinated and six feet apart from other people outside to wear a mask. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I have questions about whether people who are hesitant about getting the vaccine are going to be motivated to get it if their reality mm -hmm. is still sitting outside six feet apart from other people wearing a mask. It's so hard because I believe there is a real role that trauma plays in our polarization. I've been thinking about this a lot. We've been working on this in our second book. America has done such a terrible job of dealing with national traumas. We're not really good at individual traumas. And so what I'm saying is not this isn't a trauma, or it is just move on. What I'm saying is recognizing trauma is not the last step in our national healing. And I'm not saying we know the steps because we've been so shit 
at it in the past. We don't, but I want to learn. And I feel that way about racial justice. Like I cannot, like I, I affirm the trauma as fully and completely as I can as a white lady. And also, I need some leadership on what comes next. For better or for worse, I think there's a little bit of that that spoke to me from James Carville, which is we all agree what comes next. If you're a Democrat and you agree that Donald Trump was awful and traumatic for our country and that COVID was awful and anxiety producing for so many people and that racial justice is a top priority, great. What comes next? What do we do after that? Because saying there will be an after does not negate the affirmation. Like it does not say because we will not stay here in the trauma that there was no trauma. I just, you know, I'm, I've not done a lot of therapy, but I feel like I've done enough to know that. Yeah, because what therapy really teaches you is that you keep living and you mm-hmm. you take the trauma and you integrate it into who you are as a person and you keep living. And it scares me a little bit on that front when the reaction to a photograph on Instagram, for example, of leaders who we know to be vaccinated, it scares me a little bit when the reaction to that is, where are their masks? They should be Mm -hmm. setting a good example by wearing their masks. I kind of think they're setting a good example by showing that they got vaccinated and that now they can gather together. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, that is the pressing need right now. I know not everybody's there. And again, I'm not mad at you you if you aren't. I really don't want us, though, to to be stuck here for longer than we have to be stuck here. And I feel the momentum around staying stuck. And look, I acknowledge that I'm sitting in Kentucky where our leadership has made public health a priority from the beginning. It has to be infinitely more frustrating to be in a state where there have been no restrictions And no sentiment that it's even important to behave personally in a responsible way. That's got to be so frustrating. If we no longer had a mask ban in Kentucky right now, I wouldn't be mad about it. Because I do think our government here in Kentucky has been really serious about educating people on what the choices are and what the responsibilities are and how our behavior impacts other people. And I think we've got enough vaccines now that if we said to people, you got to just make your choices in the world. I think that would be a fair thing to do. I would not be upset at all if those restrictions were lifted and the governor just said, like, hey, if you aren't vaccinated, I've done my very best to tell you what mm-hmm. the risks are. I've done my very, very best. And now we got to all make our choices and operate in this space. And those choices are not equal for everybody. And that sucks. That really sucks. Yep. But they aren't in any space. Ever. That's to your point about school closing, Sarah. I wanted to circle back to that to say it is not that you don't care about teachers when you say we've gotten it wrong on schools. And it is not people are making the argument this blows my mind, a form of white supremacy. The reality is lots and lots of people getting COVID hurts people who were already marginalized more than people who weren't. 
and the precautions of trying to guard against the risk of COVID hurt people who were already marginalized and Mm -hmm. people who weren't. Both paths hurt marginalized populations more. I don't think it's fair, honestly, as a white person to use the marginalized experience to argue for what I want anyway. I want to be sensitive to it and I care about it and I want to be responsive to it and I want to do any work I can in the world to make things more equitable in the long term. But I don't think it's fair in this situation where it is clear that both paths continue to harm groups that were already being harmed in a normal society to use that to hammer home what I think the outcome ought to be anyway. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E.com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. 
and you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. your argument about being in different situations, of course, that's true, always in America. And I think living in a state where you felt like the governor was not protecting you is more than just frustrating. It's scary. I felt that the entirety of the presidency of Donald Trump. I felt like I was on my own. And that is really scary. And I agree with you. And also, I don't want us to stay in that fear. I just don't think it is good for us. And that doesn't mean like buck it up, be brave. It just means, okay, let's talk about how fear works on us. Because one of the biggest critiques of the Republican Party is that they use fear to motivate people. And I want to make sure that we don't do that either. And I think there was some of that with school closings. I think that that there was some praying or at least being overly, not, I don't know if overly responsive, but it's just like letting fear rule the day instead of the science. Instead of the experts telling the expert, all of a sudden scientists like or economists like Emily Oster were getting these crazy letters saying that she supported genocide because they were saying something we didn't agree with. And I just think that that is really, really damaging to our to our civic fabric. Like and I think that we have to own the damage because it's again, just if one side is horrendous. It's not in proportionate to how perfect the other side is. We can still screw up, too. And it is okay to have some failures because Mm -hmm. a crisis is going to have failures. I think part of the reason I feel really comfortable about the way that COVID has been managed, particularly in Kentucky, is because my professional history is helping people through divorces, then corporate bankruptcies, then human resources issues. All scenarios where perfect is not available where Mm -hmm. behaving correctly is not an option. It's all about prioritization, making the best of tough situations, and, and getting comfortable with the fact that a lot of the human experience is difficult and harmful. And something that has been really important to me from the beginning of COVID is to never tie the behaviors that I was trying to exhibit myself to some sense of morality because I worried from the beginning and you probably heard me say it on the podcast that people who got COVID would feel like they had morally failed and Mm -hmm. it is a virus not a sin and I really have been concerned and I I remain concerned about people who get COVID feeling isolated and shunned not only because they have to quarantine but because people treat them like they really messed up. And I don't think that's good for our management of coronavirus. And I don't think it's good for the way we talk about disabilities. I don't think it's good for the way we talk about health in general. Mm -mm. It's really important to me that we don't tie these things up together. And I think that that's another kind of panic that I have about the culture wars around masks and vaccines right now, and even some of what James Carville was describing. It is counterproductive at some point to tell people, well, you're using the wrong word, so I'm separating from you. When in my life experience, if you sit down and talk with someone who hates the word privilege, 
about whether some of us have an easier path in life than others, and that skin color is a part of that, or what language you were born speaking is a part of that, or how much money you grew up with is a part of that. I've not met anybody who disagrees. Yep. There's so much opportunity. If you're willing to say, like, I'm not going to do the jargon right now. I'm going to put this in my own words and try to connect with you as another human being. And I'm open to what your experience of things that have been hard and unfair in life look like as we try to connect through this. I totally agree about the moralizing. We had a beloved Patreon person comment and just give this long asterisk about how she got COVID. And I thought, you do not owe mm-hmm. that to us. You do not have to explain to me how you got COVID. And I 100% Sweetheart, understand why she did it. 100%. Yes. And I'm like, but I just, that breaks my heart. You don't owe that to anybody. And like, look, here's where I think the James Carville thing connects to one other piece I want to talk about from David French called Will a God Gap Dune Dreams of a Democratic Dominance? Because his point is that Currently, the Democratic Party holds the most religious and the least religious communities. You have educated white people who are abandoning religion at a rapid pace, and you have communities of color that are some of the most religious in our country. And I think the presence of that moralizing, especially as it appears in woke culture, is a manifestation of that because people want to moralize, and I get it. You know, I think that that is a human need that is important to really think through and feel like that you are doing the right thing, that you are. You listen, I'm an Enneagram woman. Like I don't when I am concerned about righteousness, I am always talking about myself forever and always. OK. And so I think that we want to do that. Like my what I've been saying a lot recently is like Twitter ain't church, but we sure want it to be like we want to find a place where we can call out the sinners and mark ourselves among the angels, even those of us who would never, ever, ever step foot in church. And again, I don't think this is something we're going to strip out of the national psyche. Even in, in the same way, I'm not looking to strip out people's anxiety or fear. That was a normal reaction. What I am looking for is integration and evolution and to recognize what's happening, why we have that human need and find healthier ways to meet that need without exacting that toll on our fellow citizens. I want us to be the best citizens available to us. And we have to be connected to each other in order to achieve that. Like we can't intellectualize it in our own head. We can't do it through a Twitter thread, y'all. Like it's not, it doesn't work that way. We have to work on each other. We have to say, I know you were so scared you were going to die. And I know I was scared I was going to die. We get it. We cannot stay here. I am worried for you that you are stuck in this spot. I want you to live a full life. We can't just stay in. I see the toll of racism on you and it breaks my heart. And I want to throw my body over your child and let nothing ever bad happen to them. But we can't just stay there. Like we have to work with each other and connect with each other in order to move forward instead of just we have to carry each other out of that trauma instead of just shaming and scolding as a reaction to it in order to signal how seriously we take it we have other tools available to us besides shame and scolding and moralizing to say that we think something is wrong and i'm for using those tools I'm for using the vaccines. I'm for reparations. I'm for a lot of the tools available to help us really in a way that could 
have some momentum propel us beyond some of these traumas. Not that it fixes it, mm-hmm. that it is a tool that you bring to help the problem and help move it forward. I'm for those things. I don't want to take anything away from anybody's suffering. I want to figure out, especially from our leaders, I want to figure out how we say, okay, let's gather ourselves and say, what does the next phase look like? I think this is really hard. And I also think we make it a lot harder than we need to. And I wonder, you know, if you're in a community where people are lying about their kid having COVID and sending them to school Mm -hmm. anyway, I wonder how we might change to me, like, how do we attack that problem instead of having Mm -hmm. the same mask fight that we've had for the past year? That's a distinct problem, especially now that we have vaccines, we have more access to testing. What do we do to attack that problem? It's not that I think we're out of the woods here. I don't think we're going to be done with this. I put myself every day, just like before the 2020 election, every day I had a moment where I thought, Beth, Donald Trump could win this election again. You're going to have to figure out how to carry on. How are you going to do that? Like, just sit with it for a second. So every day now, I tell myself, Beth, we're not going to get to herd immunity. You're going to live with coronavirus. What's that look like? And so in those moments, I just think, like, let's let's focus on the new problem and how to fix the new problem instead of staying in yesterday's argument. Because that is like a civic betrayal. That is a betrayal. The feeling that you live in community with someone who would act so selfishly or what you perceive to be so selfishly. It is a, it is a betrayal, and betrayal is traumatizing. And that is, some, again, that's something we need to articulate and deal with and address, just like you said. And I think what James Carville is saying is we have tools and we can address it, but we can't do jack shit if we lose elections. And in some ways, I agree with that. And in some ways, I think the problem is bigger than anything an election can solve. I think you need what we talked about, the emotional leadership that I really do believe Joe Biden is providing, you know, that teaching us that, hey, we have hurt each other. We have betrayed each other. And also we want to continue forward. And I think part of that is gets to something before I answer. I want to hear what your answer is that James Garville says in the article. I think this is just the like this is the meat of the whole entire thing. He says, take someone like Democratic Congressman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's obviously very bright. She knows how to draw a headline. In my opinion, some of her political aspirations are impractical and probably not going to happen, but that's probably the worst thing you can say about her. Now, take someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, the new Republican congresswoman from Georgia. She's absolutely loonier than a tune. We all know it. And yet, for some reason, the Democrats pay a bigger political price for AOC than Republicans pay for Greene. That's the problem in a nutshell, and it's ridiculous because AOC and Greene are not comparable in any way. I want to hear why you think that Democrats pay a bigger price for AOC than they pay for Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think it's because Republicans have understood for a long time what you just said, that a lot of our biggest societal problems cannot be explained or solved by policy. Doesn't mean we shouldn't use policy or that policy is unimportant. It is. And we can and we should. And also... I think a lot of Republican voters are comfortable with a super big tent. Communities get to send whoever they want to to Congress. 
I don't want Congress to do much anyway. When Congress passes something, usually I think the harm of it is going to be worse Mm -hmm. than any possible good that could come from it. So what difference does it make? I think it's why, you know, we talked a little bit about Noah Rothman's piece on Patreon. Noah Rothman has a new piece in Commentary saying that Republicans have a self-harm problem because a lot of the party doesn't care about winning elections as much as they care about pissing off people who are liberal or staying in the faces of people who are liberal or generally feeling like you can't tell you can't be the boss of me. And that's cultural more than it is political. And the party got there by elevating cultural issues for the last 30, 40 years. When you look at what happened around reproductive rights, for example, that is a cultural conversation as much as or more than a policy conversation. You know how I know? Because I ask people who are against abortion, if we had policies in place that would get us to almost no abortions happening, would it be important to you for it to be illegal? And they say, yes, they want it to be illegal, even if it wouldn't make a difference to the outcomes at all. That's cultural more than it's political. And so to me, what AOC represents to Republicans is cultural. It is a lot about a fresh face, right? Someone who demographically is different than who has been in leadership before. And the feeling that creates that all the people who look like people who've been in leadership before are not welcome anymore. Because it can't be that new people are welcome. It has to mean that if new people are welcome, the old people are out. It represents using the right language about things, language that people have decided they abhor, It means policies that sound like the government would be doing something that might change something about my life, and I don't want that. And so I think that that's why Marjorie Taylor Greene can just be sort of a sideshow and it doesn't matter. But what AOC represents is culturally powerful, and that is the problem. I'm trying to train myself to stop seeing everything through the filter of the respective bases. Because when James Carville says we pay a price, it's not with each other's bases. That's right. Right? You know, we're not paying, like, Republicans aren't paying a price for Marjorie Taylor Greene among their base because they're the base. It doesn't matter. And and Democrats aren't paying a price among the base because they're going to support AOC. It doesn't matter, right? So what we're really talking about is that center person who doesn't live and breathe politics who is a moderate or a swing voter, voted for Trump, voted for Obama, and that person matters tremendously. So why do I think AOC hits them harder than Marjorie Taylor Greene? And I think it's because a lot of the sloganeering from the Republican Party is cultural, like you said, and it's invitational as opposed to oppositional. It's we don't think you're that bad. We think you're fine. We think things are fine. Now, I think this is really hitting the limit of its lifespan for what it's worth. Coming out of pandemic, articulating that everything is fine is a interesting approach. But I think there's that sense of like, well, she's like not mad at me. She's mad at things and she's a little wacky, but she's not mad at me. Whereas I feel like with AOC, whether it's her message or not, and definitely I think there's a racial component, the articulation is like, no, you're wrong. Like, you are the problem. And if you don't agree on the problem with me, you're even more of a problem. And so it's oppositional instead of what I think James Carville is trying to articulate, which is a, 
we see you, we want to help you, which I think AOC does. I think AOC probably has a decent, better than decent understanding of particularly the economic challenges and does see them and wants to help and wants to articulate. But like, it still comes off as oppositional. It still comes off as check these boxes or we're not on the same page. And not that I don't think the Republican Party has boxes you've got to check, but I don't think they push that as hard with independent voters. I think they do it inside their own party right now, but I, I don't think they do it as much with the centrist. I don't, well, I don't know if they do it or not. I don't think it comes through as much with centrist and moderates. And a lot of those gettable centrist moderates, slight lean one way or another voters, I don't think that they like the message of let me help you. I think mm. that's a cultural thing. I think that there is an implicit criticism in let me help you for yeah. some people. Because there are people who make a lot less money than I ever have as an adult who work incredibly hard and are very proud of it and feel condescended to by the notion that they wouldn't. And they're not wrong in that feeling. Who am I to tell them that they're wrong in that feeling, you know? And I think that that yeah. is that education gap again where I have had an office job my entire adult life. Even in high school, my job was working in a bank. You know, I have worked in really comfortable environments that have been all about politics and hierarchy. And, you know, the the hard part of my jobs has always just been about other people, not about how it's hot or exhausting or physically demanding. It's a totally different life experience. And I think even though I know Representative Ocasio-Cortez has had those jobs, right? Like she has worked in an experience that connects more with those voters than I do. I still think the way that she and others package that message to some people, and I'm sure some of this is regional too, like the sort of rural identity, it just comes across in a way that's condescending. This is not a criticism of her. This is the problem. AOC's message shouldn't have to connect with rural identity voters. It should mm -hmm. have to connect in her district for her to win elections. Right. And the nationalization right. of everything is a big part of the problem here too. There is a piece of me that wishes we lived in a reality where Marjorie Taylor Greene was a representative from one district in Georgia. And if they think she's bananas, they cannot elect her again. But that's yeah. not the scene anymore. And I have a big problem yeah. with that not being the scene anymore. But when you want to win elections, you have to accept the rules of the game. Yeah. And when you look at the scene as it is, I think you can see why it is easier to say, well, yes, this person says things that are incomprehensible and totally detached from reality. But her reason for being is to protect the status quo. That's easier than here's a person who very competently expresses transformative ideas and people being resistant to a person who competently expresses transformative ideas. Right. No, I definitely think there's a status quo versus change that is very scary. But, you know, hopeful change can motivate people in the same way fear can. It's a bigger lift. And that's the reality of the Democratic Party as well. Like, that's our lift forever and always. You know, not forever and always. We've shifted over history. But you know what I mean? Like, right now, we're not going to, you know, he talks about this in the article. Like, we 
Democrats don't play to fear because we would lose a lot of our base. It doesn't work. My estimation, unethical, even if it did. And so, like, it is a bigger lift to, to do hopeful change. It is. And so I think that not adding other lifts would be helpful. You know what I mean? Like, let's just focus on the one hard thing we have to do, which I think Joe Biden's administration has been very good at. Like, we're going to focus on the one thing, guys. We're not going to get swept up in everything. It's like the one thing. We're going to do the one thing. We're going to do it really well. But that again, that's hard, too, in a big tent because <laughs> everybody's one thing is different. And it's OK for everybody's one thing to be different if we all agree that it's OK for everybody's one thing to be different. And I think mm. this sort of undercurrent of what James Carville is saying and and what we're talking about with COVID precaution and what Twitter makes worse every and time. And what Twitter makes worse every day is the sense that, no, everybody should be in lockstep on everything. This one thing. Yeah. And, and it is not hopeful change if you're in an environment where if you step away at all from what is the right way on this particular mm-hmm. topic, you're going to be shunned. Or even called out. I mean, look, I don't know why we're in this space as Americans where if we're not being affirmed, we feel attacked. I don't know why that's our situation, but it is. And again, if you want to do electoral politics, you got to accept that as the reality. And I think that is a deep problem we need to address. I think it is a deep problem that professors heard faculty lounge in James Carville's interview and felt attacked by it. And that's not a problem just with professors. We're all walking around feeling disrespected. We're all walking around feeling like nobody really gets what it's like to be us. Nobody sees our struggle. That's bad. We have to work on that as a country. And I don't think policy gets us there. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water. 
leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I was listening to Ezra Klein's podcast. They were talking about cancel culture. And Natalie Wynn, ContraPoints, was on there. And her book recommendation was the, t- the book, and the title was Conflict is Not Abuse. And I'm going to get the book, and I'm going to read it. But I'm already convinced from the title. And I think that's part of it. It's like, well, if you disagree with me, that means that it's abuse. And it's not the same thing. And I, I think you're exactly right. If we don't work on that, and that doesn't mean, like, again— that if you feel that you're a bad person, no. like we don't want to, we don't. The, I, the 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 cure for moralizing is not more moralizing. I'm not here to do that. I do have to watch myself because I'm an Enneagram one. But like I get it, it that doesn't fix it. But oh, I think awareness and and facing our discomfort, like we said, integrating what we've learned from mask on. Like I both, let me tell you some things. I can hold both at the exact same time and not feel an ounce of conflict. Masks are a pain, and they're a massive amount of waste. And I would like to see a dialing down of mask usage because I think they're a waste problem, and they are also just an inconvenience in my life. And I don't mean putting them on. I mean managing them for my three children primarily. And also, I will be integrating mask wearing next flu season. I don't see any conflict between those two positions. I just don't. I can hold both things. And I don't feel, if you disagree with me on one or the other, I don't feel attacked. You know, like, I just feel like this is what integration means. This is what like holding these things mean in a country as big and complex as ours is like sometimes we're going to find agreement in the mean. You know what I mean? And like that's that's okay. Your driving force is righteousness. My driving force is care. Right. And so I don't care about being woke. I care about being sensitive to other people Mm. because I'm sensitive. It doesn't take a whole lot to hurt my feelings fairly deeply. It's not a good thing. I'm not bragging. It's just a part of who I am and I acknowledge it. 
And so the reason that— And yet you have been in a partnership with me for several years. It's very impressive. The, See, that's integration right there. <laughs> the reason that I worry about language a lot and the way language shuts down these conversations is because I think we have said using the right words is the only way to show that you care. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, we've put aside some real care. Like, I 100% think that there are people in this country who would say, get the policy right for me. I don't care what the words are. Treat me with kindness and respect. I don't care what the words are. Now, there are certain words that it is so clear they hurt people. We don't use them. And everybody knows it's like smoking now. Like we all understand like smoking is bad for you. Don't do it. Right. And there. Wait, it should not be radical to say language is important and also not the only thing. And not the only. It is not not a radical position. Language is not more important than real care for people and real interest in people and a real understanding of like, what is your experience of this? What would you like to be called? Do you want to identify with this group or not? Let me not assume that you do. Do you support this policy or not? Let me not assume that you do. And I do think caring about education and social class and other aspects of life that are not pure conditions of birth, although they are certainly tied to them, is really important too. So for me, that care leads me to say, like, how can we step back from what feels to me like a bunch of really loaded assumptions about how everybody feels that are not bearing out in reality. A whole lot of people who are not white voted for Donald Trump and for Republicans up and down the ballot in the last election. So I just want to stop making assumptions here and have real interest and real care for my neighbors. Do we fix it? I don't think we fixed it. No. Are we done? <laughs> I think we might have said enough for today. Yeah. And this is the kind of conversation like where I can say 100% of people listening to this conversation are going to disagree with us about something. And that's mm-hmm. fine with me. That's fine. I think that's important. I still love you and I hope you still love me. Like we can, that can coexist. Yes. I, I want that, you know, because I want <sighs> us to all think together about that. We have problems to solve. There are some real problems out there, you know, yeah. and the problems will not cease to be if everybody is amening. Yeah, that doesn't get us anywhere. And so I I do want you to disagree where you do and let's discuss it and discuss it with your people and and let's put our best, most creative thinking to the test of what do we do about the people who are lying about having COVID? And what do we do about the economic inequality that has been exacerbated by COVID? And what do we do about structural racism? And on and on and on. And maybe this is the good place to end. Let me say I got so much of this wrong. I got so much of it wrong. I was excessively hard on my parents. <laughs> you know, like, I think that my, you know, members of my family, I was hard on them. I tested those relationships because of my fear surrounding COVID. I think there were some times I got lucky when I was frustrated with the precautions and I took risk other people wouldn't. I think there are times when I am alienating people with my adherence to language rules instead of listening to them and inviting them into the conversation. I think there are times when I'm so wanting to check the right boxes to be seen as 
having the right motives and caring about the right things that I miss the goal altogether. I do all these things all the time. And, you know, I just want to be clear on that, too. Like, this isn't coming from a, like, self-righteous situation. It's because I care about the people who are still locked down and feeling a lot of trauma and anxiety and fear. It's because I care about the Democratic Party and I want them to succeed in elections because I think their policies will help the most people. It's because I care deeply about activism and achieving and restoring a sense of civic connection. It's because I care deeply about all these things. And on that note, we're going to wrap it for today, y'all, because we're emotionally spent. Thank you for joining us for this very intense conversation. We do look forward to hearing from all of you. We love you so much. We hope that you have the best weekend available to you. And keep it nuanced, y'all, until we talk to you again on Tuesday. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. David McWilliams. Jared Minson. Emily Neasley. Danny Osmond. The Pensions! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Karen True. Amy Whited. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless. Paula Bremer. And Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and follow us on Instagram at pantsuitpolitics.